2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Later in the show, we'll talk about the continuing campaign for black lives with David Cole, legal director of the ACLU. He says we need less punishment and more justice. But first, Trump's Operation Warp Speed. It aims to deliver 300 million doses, of a safe, effective vaccine for COVID-19 by January, five months from now, which happens to be the month the next presidential term begins. Congress has appropriated $10 billion for Operation Warp Speed. Trump would love to be able to announce an effective vaccine in October, just before the November election, but is that realistic? Is it even possible? For some answers, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He's co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, how long does it usually take to develop a vaccine against a virus?
3: Well, to develop a vaccine, we usually denominate progress in, in years and decades, not months. They take a long time, and in some cases, like for HIV, um, we've yet to see a vaccine after, you know, close to 40 years of the pandemic.
2: Well, they say that since COVID-19 is a SARS virus, it's not exactly new. People have been studying the SARS virus since, what, 2002 or something like that, and that makes for optimism in some quarters.
3: Well, so SARS-CoV-2 is not an unknown a uh, class of viruses, right? We've had the, the SARS virus that showed up close to 20 years ago. Uh, coronaviruses come and go during our common cold season. Um, and so the biology of coronaviruses is known. We know some about how the immune system reacts to them, but we haven't seen a vaccine against coronaviruses, not the first SARS virus, nor any of the coronaviruses that cause common colds and things we're, we're well aware of. What's uh, hopeful in my mind is that many of the sort of operational, mechanical, commercial aspects of vaccine development are being compressed over the uh, next few months. That includes production of vaccines, which may or may not turn out to to work. All the sort of scale up of production capacity, clinical trial capacity is being done at quote unquote warp speed. What we can't sort of do is pull a rabbit out of a hat and know in advance whether a vaccine is going to work or not. We can do our best to design them uh, to elicit the best immune response, but only the the clinical trials themselves—the the things that will tell us if they work or not—it's not we can't sort of design it and predict that it's going to work without doing the studies themselves.
2: I looked at the White House website. Uh, it says that we are quote seeing tremendous progress and that quote the president's strategy is achieving incredible results close quote. They have announced successes and these involve at least three vaccine candidates that they say preliminary findings are that they do produce an immune response. Isn't an immune response exactly what we need to stop COVID-19? Immunogenicity, the ability
3: to raise an immune response, is what you want an immune to do. In the history of HIV vaccine trials and vaccine trials in general, there are many vaccines that elicit an antibody response or a T-cell response, but it's not the right kind or the right levels. Uh, or targeted the right epitopes to protect you against an infection. So, yes, it's great that if immunogenic, they raise an antibody response, or sometimes a T cell response, that there, there's no serious adverse events in the early trials. But again, the antibody response itself, the immune response itself, can't tell you whether it's going to be a predictive one up front. We don't have an idea of what natural immunity to SARS CoV 2 looks like. We don't know what vaccine induced immunity to SARS CoV 2 looks like. So, yes, immune response, great, keep going the phase three studies, we won't know until the phase three studies are done. uh, And we have uh, thousands of people taking the placebo, no vaccine, uh, or the vaccine itself, whether the the vaccine's work or not. What we'll hope to see is that there are more people who get infected in the placebo arm of these studies than the vaccine arm. And that difference is the difference that matters. Whether it's immunogenic, great. You crossed a a low bar (laughs) to get onto the next phase three. Um, but it's it's promising in, in that it's not a dud. You get to first base, you haven't had a home run.
2: Sports metaphors they always work. <laughs> Your new piece for the nation.com includes a memorable image. You write about the political incentive for Trump's people to quote torture the data until it confesses and tells them what they want to hear, close quote. Great line. but is that really possible? We're talking here about science. Science has standards of evidence and peer review and replication. We're talking here in at least one of the one of the cases um, about Oxford University. If you say your product cures cancer, you know, they can put you in jail for that. Doesn't Trump have to wait for a formal approval process to be completed? Can he announce a successful vaccine? If the FDA hasn't approved one?
3: A couple of things. There is approval, which is usually done by a regulatory advisory body at the FDA. They are in a panel body of statisticians, virologists, immunologists, vaccinologists who look at the data and say to the FDA, yes, this looks like it's a protective vaccine. It should be approved for, for sale and marketing in the U.S. There's also the, something called the emergency use authorization, which a drug like hydroxychloroquine was given. Um, it didn't have to have data that it worked. It just had to have a, a reasonable suspicion that it might. And the big worry is that the president may pluck a vaccine with preliminary data and run it through emergency use authorization and get it out to the American public without knowing if it works or if it's, if it's truly safe. There's a little book called How to Lie with Statistics. Um, and there's always ways of spinning the data to make it look good. There was a study back in the old days of AIDS in which uh, a combination of antiretroviral therapies didn't really work, but the researchers looked for a, a subset of patients for which the drug did work and said, look, it works in this group of people. That's what we call post-hoc analyses. Um, one of the most famous sort of um, examples of post-hoc analyses was with, trial for aspirin for heart disease. And Richard Pito and his colleagues at Oxford did a post-hoc analysis based on Zodiac signs. You know, if you're a Libra, you're all good in the clinical trial. If you're a Scorpio, you know, it's all bad. By, just by chance, you can find a group of people who a vaccine or a drug works for. It's, it's playing fast and loose with statistics. This is why you have these independent advisory bodies that will say, yeah, the analysis is sound. There's no juking the stats, as David Simon used to say on the wire. This is why it's going to need to be independently reviewed by the book approval process, which many, many scientists are calling for right now.
2: So this... Emergency use authorization, that's something the president can provide?
3: The commissioner of the FDA can do that. He can do it without empaneling uh, an independent advisory body to advise him on this and to to give him assurances that the data is worth an emergency use authorization. They did it for hydroxychloroquine with little or no proof that the drug was was beneficial. Uh, Yes,
2: I was going to mention that. Hydroxychloroquine, that was the one that Trump was touting, which... Now there's a scientific consensus. Well, actually, there was always a scientific consensus that there was no evidence that it worked against COVID-19.
3: Yes. Several clinical trials came out that showed it didn't work in advanced patients, in early patients, nor did it work for post-exposure prophylaxis. You're exposed and you took it and it protected you. Um, and the FDA withdrew the, the EUA. The big problem for us is that in October, the president could tell FDA Commissioner Hahn that I want... An, emergency earth authorization announced on October thirty first for for the Moderna or the Oxford vaccine and it could turn out to be a dud, but there's gonna be very little time to sort of to have any scrutiny if possible in that kind of time frame and he can he can declare success. This would be a disaster for vaccine development and for vaccine deployment. You know, vaccines depend on all of us taking them. It's not like a drug if you're sick, you take it when you get better. It depends on 60, 70, 80% of the population taking it. And if people start to, to doubt the, the validity of the results they're hearing or the veracity of, of public health experts and government leaders, you know, it's going to be hard to get people to take up the vaccine when we do have one that works.
2: So right now, the, I read the threshold for an FDA finding of effectiveness in the, in the stage three trials is 50% of the experimental group Either have the infection prevented or reduced in severity. What do you think of 50% as a as a threshold? You know, I think most people think of vaccines as 100% effective.
3: No, 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 no. I mean, we all get the flu vaccine, or we all should get the flu vaccine every year. And often they're like 65% effective. Remember, the vaccines are also about herd immunity. So if you can protect a large portion of the population partially it could be as good as protecting a small portion of the population with a much more efficacious vaccine so we're not just working on the sort of efficacy of the vaccine itself but also its coverage and so if you can reduce infections by 50% in a community and get widespread coverage of the vaccine you know you're off to a good start is it going to be a replacement for social distancing and hand washing and all the other stuff we love to hate no but it gets us it gets us on the road of having another tool in our toolbox to address the prevention of SARS-CoV-2.
2: And if they do find that one of the current candidates has reached the 50% threshold, that's not the end of the process of developing a vaccine. They'll keep working to get better ones.
3: Yeah, two things. One is they'll work to get better ones. I think some of these vaccines require two jabs. So it's not even a one-shot deal. It's like you need two shots to to raise the right amount of antibodies. And so they'll continue to look for better vaccine candidates over time. Also. Once the first one is approved, we have to scale it up. We have to get it out to people. They're making millions and millions of doses of these vaccines. But who's going to get them first? Is it me? Is it you? Are there certain populations, industries, certain vulnerable groups are going to get it first? Who's going to get it around the world? You know, it might be a vaccine that's developed here. Or it might be a vaccine developed in the U.K. or in China. Who decides who gets it worldwide? And who is going to be last in line?
2: The United States government has been thinking about this, of course, and they've made deals with companies to start manufacturing vaccines before the trials are are completed. There's a $1.6 billion agreement with Novavax to produce 100 million doses of one candidate and a $2 billion deal, even bigger, with Pfizer and BioNTech for 100 million doses into supposedly have these ready by January, is that even possible? So they're gonna produce the
3: vaccines. And this is what a lot of these these sort of bolus doses of corporate largesse from the government are are about, about scaling up production. Um, So that if it works, you don't have to wait three, four, six months to make, you know, 100 million doses or whatever. It's not a a guarantee that any of these vaccines are gonna work. Reason people disagree, but it's a way to say, this is how we're gonna compress the, the time from the end of a trial, if it breaks positive, to getting, a, you know, getting it to you and me. Um, the question is, are they betting on the right horses? Are they betting on the right vaccines? Who knows? They're throwing a lot of money around.
2: So the, the first big investment of federal money was to a company called Moderna. Tell us about Moderna and their candidate for a vaccine.
3: They're a new company. They've never really put anything on the market before. They have an mRNA vaccine, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's made from messenger RNA. Um, It's not a sort of viral protein. It's an mRNA that that is injected and allows the body to produce the protein. The big problem is that we've never had an mRNA vaccine that's been approved or or on the market from anybody yet. Um, And so it's a novel technology and a novel approach to vaccine development by a company that has never brought a, a product to market. And so it sort of is a big signal of our desperation at this moment to grasp at straws for anything that might work.
2: And let's talk about the anti-vax movement and the spread of anti-vax sentiment in the United States over, over the last decade. What's your understanding of, of this movement and its current attitudes towards, towards COVID-19? Well,
3: what's interesting about the anti-vax movement is that it unites left and right. You know, you have wealthy liberals on Vashon Island in Seattle, religious groups in Brooklyn. It's pretty interesting phenomenon because we're so polarized, but around the anti-vax movement, sort of has broad appeal across political lines. We have very low, va- you know, we've had outbreaks of measles, mumps, and other diseases in the U.S. pre-COVID um, because vaccination rates in many places are below what is needed to achieve herd immunity and protect people, um, and so. Uh, vaccine hesitancy or vaccine skepticism has been long with us before, you know, 2020. Um, you know, the flu vaccine we were talking about earlier. Not very many. You know, I can't remember. Like under 50% of Americans get vaccinated every year for for uh, a respiratory virus that kills uh, tens of thousands of people every year. And so, you know, we're working uphill to find a vaccine that works. We're working uphill to find a vaccine that we, a way to get a vaccine out in record time. But we're also working against sort of vaccine denialism, which is rampant across the country already uh, in a context where all the discussions around sort of therapies and vaccines for for this pathogen have been politicized by the White House. You know, I'd be very happy to be wrong. And in January 2021, we have a vaccine that looks like it's really effective and that we scale it up. You know, the big question, will people take it? Will the communities most at risk take it and feel comfortable that the recommendations of the federal government are going to be trusted at this time? Vaccines have faced this over the past you know, several decades. There's a lot of opting out in different states about whether you have to vaccinate your kids before they can go to school. It's become a serious public health issue so much that you know, different states are now restricting exemptions from sort of compulsory vaccine, vaccination before schooling. So vaccine skepticism, vaccine denialism is a, is a, a big, big, big problem in the U.S.
2: And the inevitable question is, what, what is to be done to assure that White House claims of a successful vaccine are scientifically valid?
3: Well, what's interesting is that there is a lot of movement in the scientific community now. Natalie Dean had a piece in The New York Times, I think yesterday, She's from the University of Florida. She's a biostatistician that works on, on vaccine development. There are many people like Paul Offit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia who's been a vaccine researcher and public health official for a long time a lot of people are going to be watching this closely and if for instance an uh, emergency use authorization is called by the president without going through the the regulatory process of the fda or the vaccine advisory body of the fda I think a lot of people will be calling foul um, and that's what we have to look for you know the idea is that we're not just asking for a vaccine to be approved by the book uh, in an expeditious fashion with independent scrutiny like we see for other vaccines just because the president's involved, it's because it's important in instilling confidence in the American public that this this agent works and that it's worth taking and it's worth vaccinating your children, vaccinating your loved ones. And so I think the the scientific community is going to be on high alert this fall, waiting for news about trial results from the companies. We'll we'll get an indication, or Oxford, or any of these other companies. Some point during the fall, whether they've made their endpoints, right? You know, if, if they simply can't accrue enough infections in their studies, you know, we may not have a result until December, January, February. But if we get early science like we did with some Desivir and dexamethasone, two of the therapeutics for COVID 19, there'll be a lot of sort of movement in the scientific community to say, how are we going to ensure that this happens in the right way? And it'll be a lot of pressure on the FDA through Congress and others to make this happen in a way that instills people confidence. And I think there's a bill, I think there are people on both sides of the aisle, Representative Braun, Senator Murkowski on the, on, on the right, and others on the left that have been pushing for standard approval processes for a vaccine for COVID when we see one.
2: And are you confident that, they, that the private profit-making companies that are uh, in the lead on this will share their data fully and honestly with the scientific community?
3: Well, one thing is, under the context of an FDA approval, they have to do it, right? If they're gonna go through the, the, the advisory body process, they're gonna go through the FDA's approval process, they're gonna to have to submit a, a, an application to the FDA with their entire research dossier. A lot of us have been saying, even if it, even if it goes through an EUA, they need to impanel the standard VERBAC as they call it, um, the Vaccine Research Advisory Bot, anyway, um, they need to impanel them to look at the data, whether they're gonna get a full approval or they're gonna get an emergency use authorization, that has to, the data has to be given to the FDA. In my nation piece, I said, you know, there's so much writing on this moment that one of the sort of movements in the clinical research world right now is to share data with researchers for your drugs or your vaccines or other medical products so everybody can evaluate them. It's not like it's put up on the web and like anybody can sort of download the data. There's some gating process, but it allows for independent scrutiny, re-review, re-analyses of the data which would be nice to see in, in the context of this vaccine uh, in the development of these vaccines. The first step is, is going through this standard review process with scrutiny of the trial results by the experts who matter and then you know I think if we got that the icing on the cake would be a way to put the data in a repository the individual individual level patient data in a repository so that other statisticians other vaccine researchers could take a look at it and look for look for mistakes or look for um, specific side effects that might not have been seen in the initial analysis. Um, But that's sort of icing on the cake. First, we want the primary analysis done in a way that meets uh, objective standards of of biomedical research.
2: Greg Gonsalves, he writes about COVID-19 and the pandemic for thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Jim. Next up, Black Lives Matter and the campaign for less punishment and more justice. For that, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation. David, welcome back. Great time to be here. And of course, the, the underlying issue of the protests in Portland and everywhere else in America, hundreds and hundreds of places in America over the last month, is the Movement for Black Lives which has raised the slogan, defund the police. Defund the police, of course, means means different things to different people. The, The Movement for Black Lives website explains, quote, defunding the police doesn't mean an immediate elimination of all law enforcement, nor does it mean immediately zeroing out police department budgets. What does the ACLU think our priorities should be on this front?
4: So I think, you know, divest from the police would be a better uh, way of describing it. I don't think anybody's really talking about abolishing police altogether. Um, I think what they're concerned about is the, the 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 way in which we have sort of put a wide range of social problems uh, in the hands of the police, and they're not necessarily— The best situated to respond to mental health problems, to respond to school disciplinary problems, to respond to you know um, you know ordinary kind of garden level uh, disputes, we could do much better. And uh, and so what and at the same time that we have invested in police, we have divested from all kinds of other social services that would respond to the root problems that. Uh, are, are, that underlie crime in, in, in many uh, inner city communities. And so um, I think that the call is really, let's invest in those communities in some form other than police and prisons. Let's invest in schools. Let's invest in aftercare programs. Let's invest in job training. Let's invest in businesses. Uh, and that's the positive way to respond to uh, you know, the problem of, of racial injustice. Uh, whereas policing uh, the, the policing the problem just exacerbates the problem of racial injustice, as we've seen time and time again uh, on the streets and in the videos uh, that it flood YouTube.
2: You recently wrote in the New York Review uh, that most of the abusive, violent behavior of cops against people of color. Begins with the enforcement of petty crimes. You know, I didn't, I've never really thought about it that, that way before, but you can list all, all of the people who were killed by the police, and it started out with uh, being pulled over for a taillight uh, or not signaling a lane change or selling loose cigarettes or whatever. If we pursue this line of thinking, that, that the enforcement of misdemeanors is the cause of way too much police violence against people of color? Where, where do we go next with that?
4: So, so exactly. I mean, misdemeanor uh, enforcement is a sort of rarely studied uh, issue, but it is really the vast majority of what the police do. You know, they, they're not spending most of their time responding to murders and armed robberies and rapes, they're spending most of their time arresting people for loitering or for disorderly conduct or jaywalking or riding without a seatbelt. I mean, incredibly low or marijuana possession, incredibly low level offenses. And there are so many arrests for misdemeanors. There are 13 million arrests for misdemeanors a year, every year. And what does that mean? It means that 50% of black men will be arrested by the time they a, they turn 23. 50%. And for white men, it's close to 40% will be arrested by the time they turn 23. We are just arresting far too many people for, for, for really low level offenses that don't pose a, a threat of violence or serious harm uh, to others, get people Involved in the criminal justice system, create these police citizen encounters, which often escalate and lead to violence. And so, one way to defund the police, to divest from police, would be to reduce enforcement of these low level crimes, which are often an excuse for police surveillance and police monitoring and police intervention, rather than an actual response to an actual problem that needs an arrest. Uh, a booking, you know, an appearance in court, a conviction, a criminal record for that person's uh, uh, long life. So, um, you know, in that review, I was reviewing a book by Sasha who's who's a professor at Harvard Law School, who wrote a book about the, you know, sort of untold story of misdemeanor prosecutions. And she makes a tremendously powerful case that, you know, one of the real reforms we could introduce is just reducing those Those kinds of enforcements. You
2: have a wonderful line. The truth is that we are all misdemeanants. No one has ever called me a misdemeanant before. Well, not to your face, they haven't. But, you know, yeah, the reality, I mean, when
4: you think about it, when, you know, jaywalking is is a misdemeanor, loitering is a misdemeanor, which is you know, often defined as walking around without any uh, obvious purpose. Well, I <laughs> I do that all the time and pretty much every day these days. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then who gets arrested, right? When you look at th- these kinds of offenses, that virtually everybody, or you know, or drive, you know, committing some traffic infraction. When you look at these kinds of offenses, that virtually everybody commits, and you ask who actually gets stopped, who actually gets arrested, the figures are, um, you know disproportionately, African-American and Latino men, young men, are the ones who get stopped, searched, arrested, booked, and convicted for these kinds of crimes that everybody um, commits across the board. And it's, you know, in part because it's so so widespread, it kind of gives the police open, it makes it open season for the police, and they go into a, a community that they think is I don't. I don't think most of them are going in to say let's arrest a black person or let's arrest a a, a Latino uh, man. But they're going into communities that they think are um, are are crime uh, have serious crime problems, and then they use these tools to sort of you know enforce a kind of martial law where they can stop anybody, show me your papers, tell me who you are, and then arrest you for. A very minor offense. And in, 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 on some theory that somehow this is going to deal with problems of, of you know, serious gang violence
2: or, or, or drug traffic and the like, and it just doesn't. Of course, there is a theory behind misdemeanor enforcement. It's called Broken Windows. It's the work of James Q. Wilson, the famous Harvard criminologist, that if you enforce the petty crimes, you will stop the serious crimes because the same people are criminals, namely young males people of color. That's the theory that our police departments have been taught for the last uh, 20 years.
4: So it is a theory. Um, I, I don't think the evidence in, in, uh, of its practice really um, bears it out. And I, you know, I think well, and for, from one perspective, yeah, sure it works. If you arrest everybody, you're going to reduce <laughs> violent crime because some of the people you arrest will be violent criminals. But that's hardly uh, you know, the, an, a rational or humane way to uh, deal with the problem of violent crime, which is committed by a very small uh, subset of people in, our, in, in, our, in all of our communities. And, and secondly, when you look at the, the record, you know, you just, it just doesn't um, support the notion that broken windows is the, is the key. Take New York City, right? New York City is sort of where broken windows and stop and frisk policing, that's where it was sort of done most aggressively. And it was often pointed to as, see, they put this in place and what happened, crime dropped dramatically. But in fact, what you see when you look at the the data is that during the period that stop and frisk was used aggressively in New York and crime dropped dramatically, crime was dropping dramatically across the country, including in many cities that did not use uh, stop and frisk and broken windows policies. And then secondly, when uh, New York stopped using uh, stop and frisk, Right, when in response to a lawsuit that the Center for Constitutional Rights brought, uh, Mayor Bloomberg then came, I mean, I mean Mayor um, de Blasio came in and on a platform to, to end the practice and they went from a practice where they were stopping 685,000 people a year in, in stop and fritz to today where they stop about 20,000 a year and crime has not increased crime has not gone up. So if that was so central to the keeping crime down, then you would expect crime to have increased in the many years now that they have not been engaged in that practice. And it hasn't. So, um, you know, I think it's a myth that broken windows is the way to go. Uh, and, you know, and, and except for the, you know, it's, it's rational in the sense, as I said before, if you arrest everybody, you're gonna catch some bad guys. But that is not the way uh, the criminal justice system properly operates.
2: David Cole, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU, and he wrote about how less punishment would lead to more justice for the New York Review. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled, progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com podcastsubscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. At Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocketcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.